If you would do me a favor, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. We're just going to study these five verses together. You can uh, read them on your Bibles or on your phones. This week is different. They're also going to be up on the screen. I'm not doing it through picture form so much uh, this week. So Paul's going to start describing us in this passage. We're going to get actually four descriptors of who we are uh, before Christ. And it's really not a pretty description You're not going to look at it and go, wow, was I awesome. Uh, For those of you who know Christ, this description uh, really should bring about humility. It should bring about humility. I think sometimes what happens is when we walk with Christ for a while, we start looking at other people who aren't walking with Christ and we go, man, I'm so glad I'm not that. And we approach it with arrogance instead of humility. The other thing that we should have as we read this is it should bring us confidence. Confidence. But again, not arrogance. It's not like God was there looking at all of my incredible qualities and saying, hey, I want Tom in my starting five because he brings so much to the table. And so again, it's not arrogance, it's confidence. At the end of our time together, you should have incredible confidence for God's great love for you. And you should never... Never have to doubt it. Because God proved it. He proved it to us. And this changes how we live. This changes how we communicate his story. Uh, We have confidence because of God. Look at verse 6 for me. It says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Look at that word here, weak. I highlighted it there in red for you. Perhaps in your translation, it's a little different. Maybe depending on what translation you're using, it might say helpless. Or actually, there's some translations that say utterly helpless. Uh, There's others that would say powerless. In fact, the Greek word here literally means without strength. And now it's not talking about like a physical strength, but more of a spiritually weak In other words, we were powerless to resist sin. We were unable to do right on our own. We're powerless to help ourselves. We didn't have that ability. We were helpless. We were hopeless. Uh, The term communicates this inability for sinful humanity to get things right with God on our own accord. There's nothing that we could do by ourselves. Another way to think about this is we had nothing to offer God. Like we, uh, we, he didn't look down and go, oh, this one's, this one's good enough. There was nothing redeemable about us until God stepped into the picture. In other words, we are powerless without him. And he came when we were powerless So what does that say to us? It says, we need him. Look at the next phrase that pops up here in your verse. It says, uh, at the right time. Perhaps your translation says, the fullness of time. Paul is saying this. This event that he's about to talk about, this event of Jesus dying for us, uh, it's a central event in human history. Everything that happened before it looked forward to this moment. Everything that then happens after it looks back to this moment. It is a central time. God sent his son at the perfect time, at the appointed time. 
Which leads to the question, what, what, what if God had waited for us to be able to improve ourselves? Well, when you look at these two phrases together, this weak, this powerless, uh, utterly helpless, and right time, and you combine them together, what that tells us is that we would still be waiting if you were waiting for us to get it right. If you were waiting for us to put our lives together. If you were waiting for us to learn how to resist sin on our own and to follow God's laws perfectly, he still would not have come. There's one other word in this verse that I really want to call your attention to. Not, not only were we powerless, we were ungodly. We were ungodly. That word translated here literally means uh, without reverence or worship. Now the emphasis here isn't so much on wickedness or being evil, but rather it's a wrong attitude towards God. In fact, Paul says it a different way earlier in Romans. He says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. In other words, they were ungodly. We had no desire to worship God. Now, some of you came in today and you're like, yeah, that was me. I came in because mom or dad made me. I came in because I'm going to lunch with my friend and they said I'd buy if, if I came. But as we sang the songs, you sat there and you were like, okay, all righty. How long does this thing go again? No desire to worship him. Uh, when you think of worship, think glorify him or serve him. Uh, Paul is saying this, if you put it kind of in modern terms, your attitude towards God stinks. You're ungodly. Which leads to this question, how about you? Uh, what would you say your attitude towards God is? Do you seek to kind of push him out of your life, to quiet him? Do you just try to ignore him? Paul describes you as ungodly. Having a bad attitude towards God. So we were powerless, helpless. We had a bad attitude towards God. And yet, Paul says, Christ died. His death was for you in that state. You who were powerless. You with the bad attitude. Christ died for you. And then he kind of does an illustration. He puts it into human terms here. Verse 7. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. He's making a contrast between divine love and human love. Now, at first glance, you, you might think, okay, wait, Paul's just repeating himself. He's saying the same thing in a different way over and again. But there's actually a difference here between righteous and good in the Greek. Uh, he's not just repeating himself. A righteous person is uh, someone that we would respect. They are just. They keep the law. They do what is right. And then you have a good person. A good person is someone that we would love. There's a warmth of good feeling. There is a generosity towards them. And he says, rarely will someone give their life for someone that they respect, but occasionally someone might die for someone they love. Now we could probably, if we put our heads together, we could think of examples of this that we've seen play out over time. Think of a soldier who would die for his friends. Think of a parent who would die for his child. Yet the awesome quality of God's love 
is seeing that Christ died for us while we were neither good nor righteous. We didn't have those descriptors about us. Seeing the depth of God's love for us was something different. Look at verse 8 with me. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, I, I don't know if you memorize scripture, if you like to, uh, if you've gotten that to that place in your walk with Jesus where you spend some time memorizing scripture and mulling it over. But I will tell you this, if you memorize scripture, that when you end up in places of doubt or you end up in places of fear or uh, different uh, emotions that are not from him, your mind will begin to recall the things that you've put in it. And so if you've memorized scripture, God will bring this back to you. This is an incredible verse to memorize. In fact, it has two of my favorite words in there. But God. <laughs> because here's the truth. It doesn't matter what was happening before because things are about to change. There's going to be a difference. God's going to intervene into the scene. And whatever was going on before, things are about to change. Those are some of the most encouraging words that you can see in Scripture because what is about to follow makes you go, whoa, that's amazing. Now we get another descriptor of our condition. Uh, for those of us who are in Christ currently, this is, a, this is describing who we were, okay? Uh, the, the word here is, while we were still sinners. Uh, think of sinners as this, living in rebellion to God. Now it's easy. Spend 15 minutes online and it's easy to point to things in culture and go, okay, there it is. There's sin. There's, there's people that are living in rebellion to God. But then there's that moment for each one of us where we gotta have to look inside and go, how am I living in rebellion to God? It's much easier to point at other people and go, totally obvious. It's a little harder to point at us and go, oh, here's where I was struggling. Nobody, and I'm telling you, nobody likes to hear that they're a sinner that you're living at odds with God, with God. And here, yet, Paul continues to describe us, right? We're powerless without him. We're helpless without him. We're ungodly. We have a horrible attitude towards him. We're sinners. In other words, we're living in rebellion to God. This is not a good description. This is not a warm fuzzy that makes us go, yes. And yet, with that descriptor of us, we find out again in this passage, Christ died for us. The good news here is that God's not just saying, hey, I love you. He's showing you he loves you. Which kind of leads to this question. How can God show justice in punishing our sin and yet show mercy in pardoning it? How do those things kind of dovetail together? How do those things work? How, how is God able to admit sinful people into a holy place like heaven without ruining it? Well, the answer here is only by means of the cross. Only by his shed blood for us. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood... Much, 
uh, more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Notice he doesn't just glaze over our sin. Uh, He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't just turn his head and be like, no, no problem. Don't worry about it. That's okay. It's no big deal. He says we're justified by his blood. Jesus assumes our liability for us not obeying the law, uh, for us being a sinner. His death on the cross pays that price. It pays that penalty. Now, this is a reference to Christ's sacrificial death. The the concept of sacrifice goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, We see this. It's basically an innocent life given in place of a guilty life. Uh, We see this in the Old Testament in Leviticus. If you look from chapters 1 through 7, you'll see the sacrificial system set up for the temple worship. If you go to uh, Exodus, uh, you'll see it in uh, chapter 12, the Passover lamb. If you remember that story, uh, they took uh, the, the blood of the lamb and they put him over the doorpost. And when the angel of death came, it would pass over when it saw the blood there. Theologically, uh, the Old Testament's going to point to Jesus in Isaiah and point to him being the lamb. In fact, if you read in Isaiah 53, 5, it says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. In the Old Testament, they're pointing to that and they're saying, hey, it's going to be Jesus. This is what the Messiah is going to do. Jesus becomes this ultimate lamb whose blood covers our sins. You see, his sacrifice, he fully satisfied justice on our behalf. So if a person is justified, it means by Jesus, by his death, he has satisfied the justice of God. And therefore, verse 10 tells us we are saved from the wrath of God. Or we will be saved from the wrath of God. Look at verse 10 real quick. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled we shall be saved by his life what this tells us is it gives us another descriptor we were his enemies this one doesn't take too much to understand right we were hostile towards god there was a hatred uh, between us we were his enemies i think sometimes we 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 look at this and we remember back to our college days and we go, oh, like I went to Arizona State and we had a rival. It was U of A. And, you know, we had this rivalry. That's not enemies. Rivalry isn't it. Enemies. There is a hatred. There is a hostility. And so let's look at our character. Let's look at who we were before Christ. We were powerless without him. We were ungodly. We had a horrible attitude towards him. We lived sinful. We were in rebellion towards him. We were his enemies. We were hostile towards him. There was an enmity. There was hatred between us. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. That's a bad description for us. The good news is, because of what Jesus did at the cross, we don't have to stay there. 
that doesn't have to continue to be our story. Look back here at verse 9 with me. It says, we have been justified by his blood. That means when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. A, a simple way to understand justified is being delivered from the penalty of sin. Uh, when God looks at me, I am justified. Here's an, a kind of alliteration. It's just as if I had never sinned plus Christ's righteousness added to my account. Sin is kind of an accounting term. It's, it's a deficit. If you consider this balance here zero, we are way down here with our sin. We have a deficit, and we are helpless. There is no way for us to get back up to zero. There is no way for us to make enough funds to put us back here to even. We are stuck in our sin, and, and what Scripture says is we become justified. In other words, just as if I had never sinned, but yet... <laughs> we also get Christ's righteousness added to our account. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees the righteousness of Christ in us because he has paid the cost of our sin and he has added that righteousness to our account. And so it's not just, I mean, this would be great in and of itself, right? But yet when he looks at us, he sees we've been added to the account. So he sees Christ's righteousness in us. This is how, if you've moved from death to life, if you place your faith in Jesus, this is how God views you when he looks at you. Then we get to this term, shall we be saved? Hang on to this, we're going to come back to it. Verse 10, we were reconciled, which leads to this question, how's that different than justified? I mean, verse 9 just said we were justified, and now verse 10 says we're reconciled. Well, to be justified means to be declared innocent, absolved from the punishment of our sin. To be reconciled means that he removed the hostility that existed between us and him. In other words, we were his enemy. There was a hatred. There was, a, uh, there was hostility. There was enmity between us, and he removed that, and now he calls us friends. There's a change in relationship status. So one, justified, removes the penalty. The other, reconciled, restores the relationship. And so they dovetail together, they work together, but they're separate, they're different. And so when you see that word justified, remember, God looks down, sees you with Christ's righteousness because of what he did at the cross. When you see that word reconciled, it means because of Jesus and what he did at the cross, I can have relationship now with God. That has been restored he calls me friend. I'm on his side. And then we get that term again in verse 10. Shall we be saved? So let's go back to verse 9. Let's address both of those terms here. Shall we be saved? Now this is written in future passive indicative tense. Now I know as soon as, as, soon as I start talking tense, uh, some of us struggle a bit and, and we're we kind of get a little edgy on that. But stay with me, because this gets good. Uh, it's talking about salvation in a future tense, kind of like later down the road salvation. And you might be sitting here like, hold up, wait. I thought I was already saved. Like, I prayed this prayer, and God came into my life. He forgave me of my sins. In fact, some pastor just talked about justifying, and I went from here to here, and I was up here, and God looks down and sees my right. I thought I was already saved. Like, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? 
So there's actually, when you read scripture and you get to the word salvation, there's three types of terms for salvation. I'm going to talk about two of them. Yes, you have been saved. You have been justified. Just as if I have never sinned plus Christ's righteousness added to my account. That has happened if you've trusted in Christ. The second is glorified. This is what we look forward to. This is the hope we have. It's called glorification. And what it's telling us is we miss out on or we are saved from God's wrath. It's kind of this already, not yet concept in Scripture. Uh, If we've come to know Jesus, we've already been saved. But that final glorification has not yet happened. We have that to look forward to. In other words, what Christ has accomplished the first one in his first coming, he'll accomplish the second one in his second coming. Paul is making this theological argument. He's going really from weightier to lighter. He's going from uh, the more difficult to the less difficult uh, moment in there. And basically what he's saying is this. If God has accomplished justification at the cost of Christ's blood, how much more will he be able to save his justified people from his final wrath? And then he goes to the next verse and he says, okay, if God's already reconciled and repaired this relationship and now he calls you friends, how much more will he be able to finish the job of salvation now that we are his friends? And so what this passage does is this passage gives us hope. If you've ever been to a funeral of a believer and they've talked about, hey, they are now gone from the body and they are present with the Lord and uh, they will receive a new glorified body and the problems that they struggled with here on earth, the sin that encapsulated them, the, the physical ailments that they struggled with, those things are gone and they are now new and they are whole and they are in Christ and they are in his presence. That's what we get to look forward to. And so when it talks about this in this passage, It is a hope-giving, life-giving statement to us because we get to look forward and we go, one day I will be with him and I will be complete, I will be whole. And that is amazing as a believer to look at that and see that he's going to be able to do it. You can clap for that. That's totally cool. Such good news. He's saying, listen, If I was able to do this, you can have assurance. You have assurance that I can do that. And I'm going to take care of you. You see, for the believer, this is hope. This is confidence of what's to come. For the unbeliever, this is the path to change your identity. This is the path to change your identity. Now, it's not because of what you do or what you did. Uh, Your right relationship with God isn't because you worked on yourself to become a better person. It wasn't because you put in 30 days to, you know, become a better man or a better woman. It's not the P90X of Scripture. But it's because of what he did, right? It's not what you did, it's who you know. It's who you know. Let me see if I can illustrate this. I, I told you I went to Arizona State and I was back finishing up school there in 1992. And I was living there and we got news that the greatest band in the world was coming on tour. 
And they were going to hit our campus. They were doing a small arena tour here. And this little arena was a 10-minute walk from my apartment. So, of course, if the greatest band in the world is coming to your town, you're going to want to go, right? And so that's right. U2 was coming. Okay, I get it. You might not agree with me. You can be wrong. It's totally fine. But U2 was coming to my town, and I was so excited because they were doing this small arena show. And it was, if 92, it was what was called the Zoo TV tour uh, back then. Now, for some of you who are not quite a certain age, uh, back then, you didn't go online to be disappointed by Ticketmaster. You actually had to call them to be disappointed by Ticketmaster. And so you would pick up the phone that was attached to your kitchen, and, and they had cords back then. And so there were four of us that lived together in this apartment, and so we only had one line out. So we talked to the other apartments near us, and we said, listen, 10 a.m. Saturday, can we borrow your phones? And they're like, huh? We're like, we're trying to get tickets. And we're like, okay. So they open up the apartment. So we're literally dialing Ticketmaster, and we're yelling out the door, you get through! Did you get through? Because we're college students. We can't afford eight tickets. We can afford four tickets. So we can't make this mistake. I got through. I'm not saying I had bad tickets, but I had bad tickets. Uh, I found myself behind the stage, up in the corner, way up there. And this is where our tickets were. Now, here's the thing. One of my roommates knew the tour director of the band that opened for you two. And so he called him up. And he said, hey, listen, you guys are coming to Tempe. Uh, you're you're going to play. Um, listen, I haven't seen you for a while. I'd love to see you. You know, kind of that, that, that conversation. And uh, he said, we found our way down to him. And uh, he let us sit in the, uh, in the sound booth for the Pixies. The Pixies were the band that opened up for him. And he let us sit in the sound booth. And then he, then he turns to us and he goes, you guys want to go meet the band? And I'm like, which band? You know, kind of mommy's like, ah, both of them? I was like, <gasps> right? And you're like, oh, sweet. Yeah, 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 totally. I totally want to go meet the band. And so he's like, all right, come on, follow me. And so the four of us were like little ducks and the mama duck, you know, wander, walking through the auditorium as they're changing out to set. And somehow, stupidly, I got up close to this. I'd never been that close to a stage before. I was like, I'm always in the, you know, the nosebleed. And I'm like, oh, this is really cool. And I'm looking at the stage, and I realize there's now a gap between us. And so I start to go hustle, and I go to go behind stage. And pretty much the largest human I've ever seen to that point said to me, what do you think you're going? You can't go back there. And I'm, I don't have the pass that anyone else has there's nothing about me that's going to get me into this situation. And so as a college student, I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I, I, I'm with him. And I yelled it really loud because he's way in front of me. He turns around and he's like, dude, keep up. Yeah, he's good. He's with me. And guess who found himself backstage? Yeah, right? Guess who found himself meeting the bands? Guess who found himself with better tickets for the show? Why? Because I'm with him. I'm with him. Listen, this list does not have to define you. 
This list is not your story. You can move from being powerless, ungodly sinners who are God's enemy to being justified, free from the penalty of sin, to being reconciled, having right relationship with God and having assurance of salvation. That can be your story. Not because of you. In fact, our answer is, I'm with him. I'm with him. It's only because of his blood. It's only because of what he did on the cross. This is what we're going to be remembering this week as we journey together. This is what Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are going to be about. We're going to be remembering together the steps that Jesus took on our behalf to go to the cross. This should bring us to thanksgiving for what he has done, what he has given us. In 1876, there was a preacher. He also happened to be a hymn writer. His name was Robert Lowry, and he wrote this hymn, and he asked this question in the hymn. And some of you, as I ask this question, the melody will start playing in your mind, but he asked this question. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? What can cleanse me from within? Nothing. Listen. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's it. I'm with him. Jesus gave us a uh, method to remember what he did. It is the sacrament of communion. And so... You can go ahead and take the cup and the bread out. And we are going to celebrate and remember together. At Bailiff, we have what's called an open table, uh, which means this. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus for your salvation, well, then you're welcome to join us at the table today. But let me just take a second and just remind you what it is we are doing here in this moment as we come to the table together. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in a very real sense, when we come to the table We turn and we look back. We look to the cross. We look to the sacrifice. We look to Jesus' death and resurrection and the fact that that gives us the ability to be saved. We're saved from the penalty of our sin. He removes that sin from us if we put our faith and trust in him. 
And so in this moment, we remember what he did. But we also look forward to where he will one day come again, to where we will one day be with Jesus in glory, to where in that one day we will not struggle anymore with sin or the effects of sin. It will be removed from our presence. We will be glorified. We will be free. And so we remind ourselves that's something we have hope in. That's something we're looking forward to. Uh, Now, truthfully, those are the two elements of communion that I love. I, I love to look back at this sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf, and I love to look forward to his promise. But there's another element of communion when we come to the table. 1 Corinthians 11.28 says this, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So in a very real way, when we come to the table, we're invited to look at the present. We're invited to look into this moment right now. This one's a little harder It's a little more awkward because we're looking at our lives and this is just us and God and we're looking at the places where we're letting sin control us and it's our opportunity, it's a reminder to confess and to bring those before the Lord. We're looking for the places where we've fallen apart from each other and we've disappointed and we've lived in sin with each other and how we've dealt with each other. And it's a reminder for us to go get that right with each other. And so I'm going to give you just a moment. I'm going to let you just close your eyes, just bow your head, and just ask God, is there anything in this moment that you and I need to deal with? First Corinthians eleven twenty three. the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Father, thank you so much for sending your son, for changing our story. Jesus, thank you for giving us a way to remember and a way to look forward in hope. It's in your name, Jesus, pray these. Amen. We're going to respond with a song. And as we sing, if you would like someone to pray with you, there's a couple places you can go. Right back there in the prayer room, there are people standing by that would love to pray with you. If you're online, just say pray, and there are people sitting right there that would love to do that. If you'd like to talk to someone about Jesus, I'm actually going to step down and I'll be right there. I would love to talk to you. If you're like, man, I think that first list describes me and I want some help figuring out that, how do I get that other thing in my life? How do I get to say I'm with him? The song that we're going to sing is that song I was talking about, What Can Wash Away My Sin. Darnisha's going to start us off in kind of the old way that probably you remember it singing, uh, but I've asked her to uh, include a new way to sing it, and here's why. A few weeks ago, I was reading the passage, thinking about this uh, passage, and this new version came on. And in my head, I was like, listening to the words going, I know this song. But the way in which it was sung, I was like, that's not right. And what it did is it made me kind of stop and pull the song up and look at the words and listen to the words. And it made me see the depth of the words that I was singing. Because what I had grown up singing, I sang just kind of rotely. I just fell right back into that way of singing it and knowing it. But the new version caused me to read again the depth of what God has done for me. There is such a depth to this song. And so here's my encouragement to you as we sing. She's going to start with our old version and we're going to move to the new. Read the words. Be reminded, be encouraged again at how great God's love for you, how there's nothing, nothing, nothing that you can do to earn salvation. It's by his blood shed for you. Will you stand as we sing?